Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm a practicing hemonc doctor, and my interests are medicine, oncology, and health policy. And that's what you're going to get on Plenary Session. This week on Plenary Session, in honor of Delta, we're going to take a break from our planned hashtag zero COVID, and we're going to cover SARS-CoV-2. I'm going to put together all of the clips I've been putting out on the YouTube channel into one episode. And if you want to keep up with all of the content, you're going to have to go to YouTube and subscribe. And I, Prasad, MDMPH, check it out there. And without further ado, this is a special episode. It's in violation of season four rules, but it is in fact, hashtag all COVID, hashtag Delta. If you like this podcast, leave us a rating or write us a review. It helps new listeners find the show. You can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. You can email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. Give us your suggestions on what we should be covering. And if you really love this show, you can back us on patreon.com. All right, I'm back. I'm back. Plenary session, virtual edition. I'm joined by the great Dan Morgan. Dan Morgan, professor of medicine, University of Maryland. He's a practicing infectious disease doctor. He is a infection control expert. So he's got all the credentials. He's also a a self-professed liberal. And that's going to play in because of some of the interesting things you've been tweeting. Dan, it's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, Great to to be talking with you again, Vinay. We're going to be talking about two things. I think maybe we'll talk for 15 minutes or so about uh, COVID-19. And then we'll talk about your paper and medical decision-making, which is uh, always going to be in style. COVID-19 won't be in style forever. So here's my question for you, Dan. Um, You know, if you're on the campus of Brown University and you're a 20-year-old college student, you just got a rude awakening. You just got, uh, you've been spitting in tubes and that spit is no good because they found some SARS-CoV-2. And so my understanding is that, you know, they shut down the whole campus. You have to eat outside. You're only allowed to hang out with three people. Other colleges, you have to wear the mask outside as we know the prime place where mm, cloth masks work, right? Obviously, so cloth masks, obviously they work even though Bangladesh, they didn't work. And obviously they work outside even though that's not the place where COVID spreads. Okay, so here's my question to you. This is going on to universities. They are really, you know, martial law. And then, you know, you go out any city, people are in restaurants, 50 people, 100 people, no mask, indoors, dining. Nobody else is doing this. What is, what is the goal? I'm just, what are, we, what are we trying to accomplish now? Can we get rid of this virus forever? What, what, what are we doing? I mean, uh, that, that's the big question really is what are we doing? And I, I'm not sure that people have the same answer or that people have really thought about what is the, the end goal of this. Because, I mean, it, it seems uh, if you really ask anyone, they say, well, the virus will never be gone. It's just we're trying to wait for it to become endemic, which I'm not sure exactly when we decide that's happened. But, you know, I mean, it seems like it's, it's pretty much happened. It's just uh, sort of at higher or lower levels of endemic state right yeah. now. So I guess my question, though, is like, I don't know, is Brown's policy serve a purpose? Like, what does it actually even do? Does it even help? Does it help anyone at Brown? They're all 20 year old kids. I mean, I, I was just talking to a, a parent of a Brown ch- a child, uh, a colleague of ours, uh, Debbie Korenstein. I don't think she'd mind me saying. And uh, she and her husband, her ID docs, were eating with her, her son. And they're, they were saying they thought it was crazy to be testing weekly because, uh, you know, you have a it's 99% vaccinated population. It's a young population. Uh, you know, it's it's just, it's a cold more than a, a severe disease. Um, but the weekly testing is going to mean that you don't go to school. Yeah. And 
I've heard that some colleges, not Brown, I guess, but uh, some that uh, colleagues of mine advise on, have, uh, parents have decided they won't let their kid be quarantined and uh, or else they won't pay for it. Really? And colleges are not quarantining people at some some high-end colleges. I see. Interesting. I mean, I don't know what any of this, I mean, I, I think I do know what happened. I think what happened is a lot of people who put out modeling papers are getting paid by these companies, like whatever, uh, you know, all these companies that are selling these tests and the companies want to sell the test. And so they call, they go to colleges and they say, look, if you don't do our testing, you're going to be knee deep in hospitalized kids and you don't want that. And so of course the hospital or the college gets scared. It's run by bureaucrats who don't know anything. And uh, you know, they capitulate to this kind of tactics and, I don't know. I don't think we're helping anybody. And I think we're kind of messing up these kids' youth. Um, I mean, I think it's definitely a huge distraction. I mean, I, I see this as uh, I just put my, my pre-K child into a new school, which is a highly liberal school. And uh, they do all the college stuff, weekly testing, et cetera. And, uh, you know, outdoor masking. And um, God, I think it's just a trap that people fall into. I mean, I, I, I do think uh, some people have undisclosed conflicts of interest, but I do think also the biggest one is just, I think humans want to be doing something. People are kind of scared, especially if they, you know, uh, are on, on certain end of the political spectrum. And so they want to see that something's happening. And so, you know, get out your thermometers, get out, you know, your mask and all these things that appear like you're trying and even, you know, and don't really look for the evidence, like it just naturally must work. I think, you know, that narrative carries a lot of weight. Yeah. Don't just stand there, do something. Yeah. I think that's, um, that's the classic mantra. That's, you know, one of the curse of being a human being that you're just going to keep trying things that don't work. Don't make a lot of sense. I mean, I honestly think that here's my, my thoughts on this issue. I think, um, in the next, uh, seven to 10 years, there is a 100% probability you're going to get SARS-CoV-2. Now, uh, you don't want to get it if you haven't had a few doses of vaccine in yet. If you're an older adult, uh, you know, uh, even by older, I mean, even my age, 38, you don't want to hit it. You don't want to meet it without a few doses. I got a few doses in me. Both of my arms have blown up before. You know, I've got a few doses in me, so I'm going to meet it on the best terms I can meet it on. And whether I meet it this year or next year or four years from now or seven years from now really don't matter too much to me. Uh, but that's the that's the day I got a date with SARS-CoV-2, whether I want to have it or not. That's the reality. I, I think that's true. And you may not even need to know if you met it or not. That's right. <laughs> you, know, you don't need to get tested necessarily to, uh, you know, to know what happened and, you know, stay home for a few days or something. I, I don't know how many times I've met rhino and uh, Corona viridae in the past. I don't, para-influenza, I don't know if I've met it, but I'm sure I've met it. You know, uh, I don't know because you don't need to test for all these things. Yeah, I think that's the reality. And then the other thing that I was in a lot of hot water about was, um, you know, I said uh, uh, controversially that there were no cluster randomized trials of masking school children in this pandemic or to be on my knowledge at any time uh, in human history. Uh, and uh, and that's a factually true statement. It's a technically true statement that people want to dance around. But I just saw Ireland today said we're not going to mask anyone under 13. UK never mask anyone under 12. I mean, we have to grapple with the fact that we are doing something that no one else is doing, which is we're masking the two. And by the way, I always wonder why they didn't just, why don't they go to one? What, what happened magic? What happens when you turn two? Suddenly you got, you got, they got you with the claw. And then we have to put them in the mask that actually doesn't work. That's what, you know, instead of the surgical mask, because obviously we don't have surgical masks in their size. And obviously we don't have data that supports that. But we put them in the cloth mask that didn't work in Bangladesh. I mean, what am I to think? This is really thoughts. You're an ID doctor. You're an infection control. You like to control infections. That's your job. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, there's always um, a bit of a conflict internally, I guess, for me, um, you know, because my my day job is really to sort of, uh, you know, enact policies that are that are passed along by OSHA, CDC, you know, whoever else that, that tend to be quite conservative, uh, you know, and the debate is more in 95 masks versus surgical masks, not, you know, masks <laughs> yeah. or not. Yeah. And um, but I mean, I think, you know, middle ground often is is very helpful and sort of like trying to kind of gradually move in one direction or another and address fears. But um I mean, I, I do think the European experience is is key, and I think it shocks Americans to hear that uh, countries that are very similar and that had similar, you know, rates of COVID, just didn't do that and didn't do it last year. Often, you know, and had schools open during the pandemic before a vaccine was available, um, and I think that's just hard to conceive of. I mean, I I think it it really does emphasize something that hopefully we talk about later with probability that like people tend to be all or nothing thinkers, and it's sort of like the vaccine's good. Everyone should have it. I want my five-year-old to have it, you know, without knowing if the data shows it's good and, uh, or masks are good. And therefore we should be putting them on as much as we can versus the kind of nuanced version, which is, you know, yeah. masks are probably good in some situations. And, you know, when I go see a, a patient with COVID, I'm, I'm putting them out on my of mask course. and I like, I don't want to, um, you know, and if I'm in a, you know, crowded room of a bunch of people, I don't know. And, uh, some are coughing. I want a mask on probably in 95 would be good then, but like that, you know, that variation in risk is really hard to assess and to say like, well, I'm outside or I'm in my car by myself. There's no reason to wear a mask. Um, you know, which of course you see a lot of that. Yeah. I mean, I think you're, you're hitting the nail on the head. It's hard to get that nuance. And it's also hard to like point out the other thing I think people have a hard time grasping is they're like, well, you know, it's, it's the classic, it's the classic reductionist mechanistic thing. Like, yeah, this should catch something. So it's better than nothing always. But the reality is like, yeah, True, theoretically, sure. But when you start to drift into certain age groups where compliance goes low, where mucus production goes up, where saliva goes up, where they take it off to make a big big nap during the day. I mean, at some point, it's uh, really just a distraction. Um, and obviously, it's taken on biblical portions because uh, biblical proportions because of the politics of it. But let me come to the one thing you've said that I wanted to talk about for a second, the vaccines. Um, you know, it, I, I guess I haven't said this too much, but it kind of troubles me in one sense, Dan, which is like, you know, when you, you run randomized trials for a reason, which is like, you don't know what you might get. You might get a win. You might not get a win. But the way we talk about kids five to 11 vaccines, it's like we have assumed it's a win and we're going to go forward. And no matter what the results are, in which case there's two questions that follow. Like if you've decided that, then you shouldn't have even done the randomized trial. You're just delaying the inevitable. Like you're going to approve it anyway, yeah. no matter what you find. So why even do the study? It's not going to change you. Um, but also it's kind of, I think it's a problem. And, um, you know, like there really is something that could come in that trial that would make you rethink that fair to say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I mean, this is what been one of the interesting sort of Twitter things that I, I tune into here or there and don't really say much about. I mean, you know, certainly like myocarditis being, you know, a rare, but you know, bad side effect in, in young men and uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the strokes, you know, with the, the Johnson Johnson yeah. vaccine with in younger women. And, and certainly there's a rare events, but if you start talking about people who have very, very rare COVID events, you know, it, it starts to seem hard to, to prove there's a benefit. And I, I know some of my colleagues have said, you know, I think as long as it's, it's not dangerous for kids, which, you know, that's a relative term, right. you know, we should just be doing it so that schools stay open, which, I've often thought that's probably, you know, trying to fix a problem in our policy with, uh, you know, forcing a vaccine without great evidence. And 
it's it's hard to talk openly about vaccines and you know some are great and some are bad and some actually and most may be good in some places and you know and not very helpful in others you know so well put i mean like i agree we want schools to stay open um and then people say like that's why we mask and i was like well the whole point i'm trying to make is like if masking doesn't slow spread then that's not actually keeping it open right you know like and if mask you know, like the like the kids are in the hospital i was like yeah but if it this masking like doesn't work then like they're just going to keep being in the hospital and like you're not helping the problem so like why do we want to do things that don't work and then similarly for like the keeping schools open like the best thing you can do to keep schools open is like don't do blind surveil. <laughs> don't I mean, keep collecting everyone's spit and it will stay open more than if you collect spit. And the whole point of collecting spit is theoretically you decrease the number of people in the hospital somewhere, but you have no clue if that's true or not. All you do know is you're disrupting society after having disrupted it for a year for no good reason. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, I, I think I remember someone, uh, it's funny. I, I hear complaints about you. Like well, I was with him, but I, you know, he pissed me off with this thing or that thing, you know, like, a, but, uh, but I think, I think one of them, um, related to, um, oh shit, where was I going? Um, I don't know. Is is relating to, to this issue where I think, you know, you, you had a good point. Oh, and they were saying like, you know, what, what will, uh, Vinay be doing in, in 10 years? You know, will he be doing randomized trials of, of kids in school? And, and I, I would say, I mean, I, I think this is all pretty consistent with what your arguments have been all along. They haven't related to schools or anything else, but it's just like more scientific skeptical side about what we do or don't know versus let's do things. And then, you know, based upon theoretical mechanisms and then, uh, you know, worry about if they work later. Yeah. I mean, I think people are like, oh, you know, you're going in a different direction. I was like, my direction is always the same. Here's my direction. Um, <laughs> it, it, you can always do things on a short-term basis in the moment of panic. Sure. I'll, I'll give you it. I didn't say a peep yeah. about it first year. I was very quiet, whisper mm -hmm. quiet. One year, I give you one year grace period. But then mm -hmm. I come at you like a ton of bricks because here's why. Then it starts <laughs> continuing indefinitely in perpetuity. They're going to keep reinstituting it. Every time there's a flu season, a year from now, four years from now, five years, they just keep reinstituting it. And at that point, the question is, you're going to keep doing it for the rest of my life. And you got to generate credible data. The next thing I'd say is like, uh, many things are plausible. You and I both agree. Many things are plausible. Most plausible yeah. things don't work. And that's what people outside of biomedicine don't know. Most exquisitely plausible things just do not work in real life. They don't work. Uh, you know, you can talk about your bug trial, but you know, they, I mean, you know, uh, most really, really plausible things don't work. That's why the pharmaceutical company is striking out more than they're hitting. Um, okay. And then the third thing is people can deceive themselves into thinking things work. This has always been my worldview for 10 years. It's still my <laughs> worldview. You can mask the kids for three months. Sure. You're getting to 18 month mark. Come on. And then the other thing, you know, you know, what is like nails on the chalkboard for me, Dan Morgan is when people say like, this is unequivocally been proven by science. Oh, <laughs> nails. I was like, no, it hasn't. God damn it. No, you're wrong. I mean, come on. You, what do you think? I'm an idiot. I know that you haven't proven that. What are you talking about? Not an idiot. I mean, it's, it's really interesting to, to, uh, to see people with sort of how they have this, uh, different values applied just depending on the subject matter too. I mean, you know, uh, all this, uh, you know, skepticism around ivermectin. I think some of the swimming pool was like, oh, you know, I hear people are giving this forced medicine, you yeah, know, to take COVID medicine, and it yeah. doesn't work. And uh, which I completely agree. Don't give ivermectin. For <laughs> yeah, COVID. I know, me too. Yeah. No. Um, you know, so like I, I, I'm with you there, but then, you know, it's, but we're in the same setting where it's like, there's all these other things, you know, that people are still doing that they have make no sense either. And uh, the people who I are saw, I saw somebody say like, they're like, they're like, 
um, about ivermectin. They're like, you know, we just shouldn't do things that are only supported by bad observational studies without randomized trials proving benefit, like ivermectin. I was like, you know, that applies <laughs> to a few other things too, but <laughs> a few other things it applies to. You're missing the point. I agree with that. You know, like my pretest probability for ivermectin was like hydroxychloroquine. It's in the toilet. And yeah. it's not just, it's not even these two. Remdesivir, my pretest probability is in the toilet. Tossy, Dex, everything is low because pretest probability for drugs is really low. We're going to talk about your probability paper now. And the purpose of trials is to prove to me it actually does work. We did have success with, um, you know, actually, I think remdesivir, the data is actually kind of. It seems like it's kind of getting worse as we go along. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think it's not so good, but steroids, the data is good. Yeah, uh, and I, I had I thought they wouldn't work because steroids seem to never work. But uh, I know that seems like the best thing we got. <laughs> what else has turned out? Tossied? What do you are you believe in? Tossied? The trials are kind of equivocal too in small sample size. I mean, I've been pretty skeptical, but you know, I've given it to some people. I yeah. mean, what about the blood thinners? These blood th the, the, if you're severely ill, they don't work. You know, there's like this little pocket that it work. The blood thinner works if you maximum dose anticoagulation. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've, I've been curious. I don't know what people are doing with that. I mean, I was, uh, the, those New England Journal trials with the Bayesian analysis um, were really kind of confusing to read and see if, if they worked or not. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm skeptical that they, they work and I'm, I'm wondering how they've been incorporated. I haven't really seen evidence one way or another. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I don't know. I've heard, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, I think the core lessons are the same, which is now we're going to talk about your paper. The core lessons are like, you know, human beings have lived for, you know, thousands of years where we feel like we can do things to combat the forces of nature around us. And most of what we feel like we can do, we can tell ourselves a great story for why it ought to do what we want to do. And then we can also pair it with morality to encourage our colleagues to say, like, we ought to do this because it's the right thing. It's the virtuous thing to do. Most of those things we've done for thousands of years have not actually done whatever we thought they would. They didn't make it rain more in a drought. They didn't make plagues go away. They didn't make us healthier when we have heart failure. Um, and the way to separate it, it was an invention in the 1940s, the randomized control trial. It's the real only good way to separate your hope and hype from truth. And uh, that's always been my worldview. It will always be my worldview. I'll give you a grace period for extenuating circumstances, but it doesn't run forever. And that's my philosophy on life. And uh, it's going to be, you know, the same consistent philosophy. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I, I'm mostly with you. And uh, I mean, and especially just being skeptical of the theoretical arguments. No, which, I know, uh, come on. Uh, I mean, I really so think much. that in medical school, it's not so clear that that's that that's important versus, uh, you know, actually like real life data and especially randomized trial real life data. Yeah. And human behavior is fickle. People behave in different ways. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about your paper. I mean, I think this is a good prelude to your paper, actually, because your paper is getting at like, I don't know, the the, the places of medical decision making where rationality and intuition can uncouple. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I mean, uh, let's see. And I guess um, there's sort of two papers that are really similar, but okay. the I'm first thinking, one. Which one do you want to start with? The, the, uh, the, the first one is about test probability and the second was about treatment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That seems so like Let's talk right about the treatment first because that's my favorite place in medicine. All right, treatment. Yeah, this is the one that, uh, you know, it, it, uh, it, JAMA said no. So it got into JAMA no. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I call it, JAMA Network Open, JAMA No. I mean, I've heard an editor say that too, so it's probably not off limits. <laughs> it's a good journal, right? It's it is a good journal. Yeah. I do like it. Um, 
And it's great that people confuse it with JAMA when they're like, I saw your paper. <laughs> yeah, in JAMA. I was like, yeah. In JAMA. And you're like, yeah, JAMA. No. JAMA, um, no. <laughs> no, no. So, I mean, it's it's, uh, it's a great journal and they did a great job of really building a, an open access journal that has a lot of good papers in it. Uh-huh. So, so let's talk about what's the title. I'm going to pull it up. Yeah. So this is a clinician conceptualization of the benefits of treatments for individual patients. Whoa. A little dry. <laughs> That's not, uh, you got to work on the title, Dan Morgan. Uh, I got your JAMA IM paper up. Okay. Clin- so the Dan, okay. Dan Morgan, JAMA network open clinician assessment. What does it say it again? Oh, so the, the one on treatment, uh, I mean, and part of this is I think like what, what we felt like reviewers would allow us to say, you know, yeah. versus like how we would translate it to the general public maybe, but, uh, it was clinician conceptualization of the benefits of treatments for individual patients. Okay. Okay. So walk me through it. What is this, what is this paper doing? Uh, I, I mean, it. so, so, uh, so, I mean, so your reaction to this paper would probably be like, uh, Victor Montori's or others when we were talking about the idea, like, well, you know what it's going to show, right? Like doctors aren't going to know it. And why do you want to show that? Um, and I mean, to, to me, this was a, it, it seemed like there was this reality that we just weren't, we, we didn't accept and we weren't really aware of that really shapes a lot of our decision-making. And so that was the goal of this and is really to, to try to translate the way we approach, uh, I guess, clinical trials with treatments, you know, where we try to look at the effect size and how many patients will be treated, will benefit from treatment and to see how that's translated to, to day-to-day clinical decisions. And, mm-hmm. um, and certainly we, we had a bias thinking that, uh, probably doctors didn't do this. Um, but a lot of the work before was kind of theoretical. You know, people would ask like math qu- uh, questions or single one-off type examples that, that didn't really put their finger on the, the problem quite as well as we thought we could. So that, that was the reason we wanted to, to have these little scenarios in a survey of doctors across uh, eight states. Okay, this is good. And I like these questions and I think it's a clever way to do it. But before we get into it, like maybe we should just say philosophically, I'm gonna tell you what I think and you tell me if you disagree. <laughs> like, um, I don't know, if there's a hundred things you can do as a doctor and you had to prioritize what to do, what are the things you do? And I would say you sort them by absolute risk reductions and you do the things with the biggest absolute risk reductions and then the things with the smallest absolute risk reductions. And I think the fallacy sometimes people make is they think baseline risk equals absolute risk reduction. But there are lots of conditions where baseline risk is really high, but you can't do much about it. You can't do much about it. So it's really the thing that you can do the most. Your delta is the biggest. Um, what are your thoughts? You agree? I mean, I, I agree. And I, you know, just add, of course, you know, trying to have, uh, you know, compare similar outcomes, of course. Of course, know, right. Yeah. yeah, we have to have the, the same core. More important outcomes. <laughs> yeah, like life or death rather than how many, I don't know, what's your... A1C at the third decimal point, right? Yeah. I mean, and I think, I mean, certainly in residency, I feel like I saw this where you would, you know, see clinic patients come in and they'd have beyond 25 medications that would all be in a bag and they weren't taking them, but you know, there were probably like three medications. If they, if they would agree to take three reliably, you could probably choose the three that would be best for them. And that would have a much bigger impact, you know, like someone on HIV meds, who's not taking that, but they take their daily aspirin or something, you know, it certainly would be, you know, uh, getting the worst of the medicine they have. Yeah, I think um, we suffer from that a lot. Polypharmacy and taking drugs that have proven they work in some key groups and extrapolating it to every single person. 
yeah, I mean, I think that that latter part is is another one that's that's hard for people to grasp. Like something just because something works doesn't mean it's good in in all patients. And certainly, I think a lot of the, the marginal benefits are when you look at mild disease and try to really expand indications. I see. So I'm looking at your paper now. I see figure one, clinician estimates of likelihood of disease outcomes and benefits of treatment. And you've got warfarin for stroke prevention, antihypertensive therapy for cardiovascular events, bisphosphonates for osteoporosis, and statins for CV events. And on the left, you have a density plot of what people have actually told you. And then you've put in orange what the scientific chance of disease outcomes is to show, I guess, quote unquote, the right answer. And you show that like, you know, sometimes a chunk of the density is in the right answer, but a lot of the times, a lot of the density is outside the right answer. And then in the right set of pains, what you do is you have what doctors estimate the um, benefit to be in terms of, I believe these are absolute risk reductions and you show the right answer as well. Um, I wonder if you might walk through like, what are we, what are we looking at here? And, and what do you think we're, we're seeing? Yeah, I mean, so that so the um, so I think you did a good job of describing this figure one, and Ooh, uh, I even have a better idea. I can even show the figure. Okay, go keep talking. I'm going to show right. the Oh, there we a, go. Now everyone can see it. All right. So um, you know, so on the the left side is uh, the chance <laughs> of having a bad outcome. Which yeah. you know, if you're doing a trial, certainly this is how you choose your population, right? Or you choose your effect, the, the size of uh, the number of people you need to enroll to show a certain amount of difference. Is how often is uh, something going to happen? And then on the right, um, you know, how much can you improve <laughs> that? And uh, I mean, one one of the tricky parts of this is like is the way we ask the question. Um, I think it left reviewers saying. There, there was some disagreement, like, are, you know, are people certain that you're asking absolute risk reduction or relative risk reduction? Because we said, you know, what is the chance that warfarin will prevent Mr. Miller from having a stroke in the next year? I see. So Zane we didn't say, word. like, what's the relative risk? So, but what you're risk. showing on the right is that either way you slice it, look at all these people. They're going crazy. Too enthusiastic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so this this picture, I mean, just is like a completely perfect distribution from zero to 100 percent. And uh, I mean, and we were really trying to phrase the question asking for absolute risk reduction, because sure. if you're talking to somebody and, you know, and there's a one in 100, uh, the absolute risk reduction is one percent. Well, really, that's like a one percent chance of benefiting them. Sure. Um, but, uh, but we didn't pin them down uh, by the number uh, with the exact terms. So we I tried see, to present both and, and really highlight that uh, people didn't do a good job of either, although absolute sure. risk reduction is the right way to talk about this. Right. Um, okay. So I guess the way I interpret this is green is right answer. <laughs> blue is like an acceptable misunderstanding answer, but either way, the density is like, why do they think warfarin works so good for stroke? What, what, what's going on here? Why do they, why are they so eager? Why are they so happy for it's Coumadin for Christ's sakes. It's not even Dabigatran. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, I think, you know, the relative risk reduction, you know, people sort of have like 50% in mind and uh, I mean, I really don't know beyond that. And, uh, and of course the problem with, with warfarin is that you, the relative risk has to be applied to the, the absolute risk in a, in low risk patients, you know, really don't have much of a chance of stroke and then can't have much of a chance of benefit. That's why we, uh, for certain chads too vast, we don't even do it. But you know, one thing I find Dan Morgan about this anticoagulation, that's kind of a pet peeve of mine is that, you know, whatever your indication is for anticoagulation, there is a non-zero probability you will have a clot again. There ain't no yeah. anticoagulation that brings it to zero. And eventually, inevitably with large numbers, you will get such clots. 
And then you'll consult the hematologist and the hematologist will go in. And inevitably, many people will say, switch them. If they're on riboroxaban, <laughs> go to apixaban. If they're on apixaban, go to inoxaparin. And they call it like, you know, failure on riboroxaban, you know, and all this language. And part of me is like, you know, I don't know, you're doing all this stuff and you probably still have like the exact same probability of subsequent embolic event as you did before. You're just switching pills and making it confusing, but you feel like you're doing something, which is another, you know, example, right? Yeah, I mean that's uh, that. It's interesting to hear the the hematology perspective because I'm I'm sh I mean that makes complete sense to me that uh, you know no evidence behind it, but uh, you know just kind of makes sense. Let's just try switching to something else. Um, Switch. And uh, you know, and ninety five percent of the time they won't have another event. So. It looks like you did the right thing. Right, you know, it looks like you did the right thing. And if it has an event, then you switch again and you keep going around the merry-go-round. Yeah, so yeah. The antihypertensive question, what are we talking about here? So this, I mean, if the right answer is a few percentage points, this is an older person with high blood pressure? So, I mean, so we tried to uh, choose these scenarios with um, the the idea that we wanted mm -hmm. to get at things where there was uh, shared decision-making was often recommended. So these are mm -hmm. ones where you know, the guidelines weren't completely clear. They talked about talking with the patient and deciding the risk versus benefits um, and thinking this is where doctors should need to know how to talk about these things. Um, of course, we know that shared decision-making is, you know, rarely actually done. And yeah. so the, the way we asked the question, so the hypertension one, uh, of course, there's a lot of nuance because if you had a high blood pressure of 200, you know, a systolic blood pressure of 200, I think there wouldn't be much disagreement that, you know, people benefit from treatment and you should do it. And you're over 75, like, Oh, older you are, higher the blood pressure, not so good. Yeah. So this one though was was not that way. So this was a. Um, so here's what we asked them: um, Consider Mr. Davis, a 60 year old man with persistent mild hypertension, systolic blood pressure 145 over 92, <laughs> exactly, without pre-existing cardiovascular disease. He is adherent to lifestyle interventions and has no particular preference for treatment. And wants your advice. That's a good question. This is, and this is a great question because it's kind of a more common question. It's this like is the guy who, primary care, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> this is bread and butter primary care from what I remember about it. But yeah, it is bread and butter primary care. Yeah. And so what you're saying here is that, wow, a lot of people really felt like, and what was the antihypertensive they could start? Lisinopril or amlodipine? What were they giving? So, so we, we, uh, we tried to get a, we tried to minimize like a lot of the details that okay. could make it, you know, easy to argue. So we said, what would you tell Mr. Davis is the chance that antihypertensive therapy will prevent him from having a cardiovascular event in the next five years? That's a good so we just said antihypertensive therapy without giving specifics. And what are you using for your answer? You're using sprint trial data? He's a little young. Um, so, I mean, so it's, it's interesting because he wouldn't even qualify for sprint because he he's qualify, too low risk. Right. Yeah. Um, so uh, we did do like a, a, a literature review. There were no perfect trials because yeah. this guy's so low risk. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, but there were a few and, and our estimate reflected that, that uh, the relative risk reduction um, yeah. was like zero to 30%. Yeah, so, I see that. So, I mean, that's, uh, uh, if anything, I'd say you're being generous, right? You're being generous in these estimates. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were trying to be generous and trying to really peg it to literature we could reference. I mean, I, I think that probably there's a range, but, you know, uh, uh, including zero was, was an important including part zero. of this I think that's important to include. Yeah. And, you know, to be honest with you, like, Dan, how often do you see somebody who's like, like this in terms of this blood pressure, but they're even younger, let's say they're 40 or 30 um, okay. and they're on antihypertensives. What are we hanging our hat on? I always wonder, like, what are we hanging our hat on putting this person on 40 years of antihypertensives when they're. I, mean, I think it's pathophysiological reasoning, right? I mean, the, <laughs> the, the number will get better. 
Yeah. And, and that's why, uh, that's why on their way out, you give them lisinopril and a cloth mask. It just makes sense. <laughs> just makes sense for that. Just makes sense. Um, so this is a fascinating thing. I mean, in your article, you argue that of all the errors being made, the more common error is that they're overestimating benefit. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, so that was the, so I think the primary takeaway from, from this is that, uh, you know, across different scenarios that were common and, and relatively simple, um, that there was a, a significant overestimate. I think the median clinician reported a benefit was 30 to 50% chance of benefiting a patient when the scientific evidence was one to 3% chance of benefiting an individual patient. Hmm. And, you know, we, we argued that, uh, you know, and uh, the other part that we found is we asked people, how likely would you be to treat a similar patient in your own practice? And uh, doctors who thought things worked better tended to treat people in their own practice also, not surprisingly. Not surprisingly. You know, it's fascinating to me, Dan, because I mean, obviously this and the other paper we're going to talk about in a second, super important, but, um, you know, we just don't, we just don't talk about this in medical school. You know, we, 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 we teach people in a way that makes them think they're omnipotent. You know, the, like, what are you really identifying? You're identifying like the doctor thinks they're omnipotent. This is the God, like the doctor thinks like I giving this pill can take it away this risk. But the truth is the risk was low to begin with. And you giving the pill actually very modestly changes that risk because most of what we do is modest marginal effect size stuff. Um, but we teach people that they're omnipotent and, and that's the explicit and implicit curriculum thoughts. I mean, I think that that, I mean, that's probably just something worth dwelling on. Um, I, I agree completely. And I think it, um, it really shapes, you know, both how doctors are perceived in society, you know, that, uh, gods, we can do these things, you know, it's kind of the house MD, like figure out what's going on and then save somebody just, you know, with the power of your brain. <laughs> Um, versus, and, you know, and it's what we do with people when we make them leave the hospital, you know, AMA versus like, well, you could stay, it probably doesn't make a lot of difference either way, you know, it, it, when that's the reality for a lot of the things we're doing, when somebody wants to go home to do something and we want them to stay, say, and I, it definitely is an overestimate of what, what we are giving to them versus what they are doing for themselves. Yeah. We're like, it's safer to stay here because we're going to watch you closely. I was like, mm -hmm. I don't know about that always. Yeah. 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 I mean, it may be, it may not, you may be taking a little risk, but it certainly seems like it's within the realm of reason to uh, allow patients to do a lot more. And I think if you share these numbers with people, most of the patients I find who are capable of understanding them tend to uh, say, oh, that's all. Well, no, I don't want to do it or send me home, <laughs> you know, whatever. Yeah, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And in addition to that, I find that like that to me is cancer screening in a nutshell. And also when you explain to somebody like that something improves progression-free survival or disease-free survival rather than overall survival quality of life, and they actually like start to understand like, well, what is disease-free survival? And you actually walk them through that. And then they look at you with this quizzical look and they're like, why are you, why are your whole profession wasting your time with progression-free survival when you should be thinking about what I actually care about? You know, I do find that. Let's talk about your next, your, I guess your first paper, but I'll call it your next paper. Accuracy of practitioner estimates of probability of diagnosis before and after. These two papers are such gems, Dan. And, um, you know, I think um, they're going to have a long uh, legacy because I think they're super important. Um, but walk us through this paper. I thought this was super interesting. And um, yeah, walk us through this. Sure. I mean, that's flattering to, to hear him described that way. And uh um, certainly these were some of the hardest papers <laughs> to do just because these were surveys and we had to get doctors to complete these surveys that made them feel like they didn't know what the, the right answers were. Um, so, uh, 
which which took a ton of work and just a lot of like personally showing up and sitting in the clinic until they're done type type work. <laughs> so, you know, that that's how you get a good response rate. Yeah, you got to lean on them. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of social pressure. I think that you know is a you know not not unethical, but uh, but certainly is the difference between people throwing it in the trash and you know actually completing it. Yeah. Um. So I mean, so we were trying to get this idea of um. I mean, really, just sort of how how we how we make a diagnosis, which you know, although we sort of talk about it, you know, the art of medicine that you know we uh, form a list of different possible diagnoses and we figure out how likely they are, and then we do some tests that modify that probability. It seems like we don't really ever apply that in real life, especially not in kind of a quantitative way. And there are these few studies out there where they've tried to um, sort of do this Bayesian adjustment to probability where they've asked doctors and uh, doctors have been really bad at it. You know, there's this classical one where they, they walked around Boston hospitals. I think uh, the first one was in 1978, um, mm-hmm. Castells in a New England Journal letter. And they said, um, Oh, let's see, let me make sure I get the, the wording right. They say, you do a test on a patient and there's a one in a thousand chance the patient has disease. The test is has a- um, 95%. Yeah, 95% um, specificity. How likely is this uh, is a positive <laughs> to be a true positive? And most doctors say 95%. Uh-huh. You know, and the, the true answer is 1.96%. Wow, Okay. And then it was repeated in 2014 um, by Arden. Is this is Christine Cassells? Um, it's uh, I'd have to look up the first okay. name. I mean, this was in, it was published in '78, and as someone who went to the NIH afterwards. Um, oh, okay, okay, go on. Maybe I'll a family member even. Um, okay. And and then uh, Arjun Manray repeated this in 2014 and got exactly the same answers. And it's wow. really the, there's a kind of two different answers. Either people just say 95% or people say kind of low. So right. it's either like they get the idea that like oh it's something less than this, or they just um, I think you know are frustrated and just kind of reach for the first number they hear, which is like probably 95% accurate. Wow. Okay. Oh, I found so, it. It's Ward Kessels. Interpretation by Physicians of Clinical Laboratory Results, 1978. Wow. You know, so, so this is a long-standing, I, I didn't really appreciate it. it went so back. So, so doctors have been blundering probabilities like this for a long time. Yeah, I mean, we didn't really have tests in 1978, so it didn't matter. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, we had just a handful of tests. Um, but obviously now, you know, we do like, I think, 14 billion tests a year in the United States. So, you know, we are awash in test results. When in doubt, test. Um, so I guess what's interesting to me about your your JAM Internal Medicine paper is that, you know, not only were there sort of pretest probability assessments off, but even, you know, even their um, post-test probability assessments were off, like both are off. Um, and if I were to quantify which direction, I guess um, people thought positive test results shifted your probability more than they in fact do. People thought that um, before the test, you had a higher probability of, well, I guess, yeah, before you got tested, they thought you had a higher probability of having the event are having the, the the diagnosis than you did. And then after you got tested, they certainly thought you had higher probability. And even negative test results, um, they, I guess, negative test results, they were better about. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a great summary that, you know, it's probably like, you know, two to 10 times higher estimates than reality. Jesus. For this. Um, and we watch too much house. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I think we, 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 you know, we make diagnoses. That's what we do. We're doctors. Um, 
I mean, I, I, the, the pretest probability part was a bit of a surprise to us. I mean, we were trying to figure out how you would study this. And we we're like, well, if we're going to see how well they calculate the post-test probability, we need to know what the pretest is. Right. And let's not just give them a set number, although it would make it obvious how well they did the calculation. But let's ask them their estimate. Like, let's make this like real life. You know, you yeah. see a kind of a simple patient. And, uh, you know, you, you know, how likely do you tell them they are to have a disease and then you get a test in the results and how likely are they to have disease after that test yeah. result? Yeah. So we kind of hid what we were asking, I guess, you know, we weren't <laughs> saying like, how well do you calculate, you know, Bayesian adjustments? We were just saying, how likely are they to have disease, which, you know, we think ultimately is what matters for, for doctors, but it's a much more complex process behind the, you know, that simple phrase. So Correct me. All right. So I think these two papers are important and they're going to have like a, a big contribution for how physicians reason about diagnosis and treatment. But let me put the, everything we've been talking about together in a, in, a, in a single thing and let's see how you feel about this. I mean, what are we talking about? We're talking about like we started by saying, um, you know, I've gotten myself in a little bit of hot water by voicing some skepticism or acknowledging the lack of evidence for some policy such as masking young children. Um, and, uh, and, uh, you recently had a long tutorial, a tweet thread, which I think went viral about how you were uncomfortable by calling this the pandemic of the unvaccinated, um, and, and, uh, focusing all our energy on how they're such quote unquote bad people, unvaccinated people. Um, and Biden has his plan to kind of increase vaccination rates. Um, and then these two studies that show, well, doctors are much more likely to think they have the diagnosis. If it's positive, they are way overestimating. And then they think our, they think our treatments are working magnificently. And I guess to put it all together, I mean, I guess maybe what I would say is that like one of the persistent cognitive illusions that we have pandemic and in regular day-to-day -day life is that um, we just have so much more control over our destiny and that our policies always work as intended and they work marvelously and they don't fail, and that um, they're not unintended consequences um, that offset our gains. Um, but the reality is that these things are always true. And so like being a prudent clinician often means not ordering the test, um, uh, especially because it can just take you from, uh, it can take you to sort of a misleading probability or being um, cautious about the treatments that have real side effects like antihypertensives do. Um, I wonder if you see it all, see it similarly. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a great summary of, uh, I mean, I, I think just sort of my natural approach to things. And, and this paper, these two papers were, were ones that really, uh, I don't know, I felt like uh, they more, more than just sort of uh, being in my normal line of work, they were ideas that seemed very interesting to me and that it, things I think thought we missed. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that we have, we way over assume, you know, how much we know, there's not much uh, openness to uncertainty. And, uh, you know, it, we, it sort of leads to a thoughtless approach to medicine, you know, and not, not the medicine that I want for me and not the medicine I want for my loved ones or, or other people. And if we were, you know, just a bit more aware of what we know and what we don't know and, um, you know, and then being able to quantify that, then, then we could probably do less and get just as much from the, you know, the medicine and all the, the money and effort we spend uh, doing medical care. You know, somebody was telling me about this, like, weekly testing of kids in school or something and they like are in a school district where it was happening and this person was saying like look i'm um the reason i like it this person's like i like it because like after school these kids they have to be taken care of by like my i don't know grand aunt or i forget who this person was but some older person in their family was taking care yeah. of these kids and they're like you know it's nice to know that even though this older person's been vaccinated that the kids have tested negative so that we're keeping this older person safe 
And I was like, you know, what you've told me is a story that is compelling, um, but it is just a story. And, and what like, and the real question is like, by having these kids give their little saliva once a week, are you really keeping this older person safe? And I guess here's some of the ways in which like, it might not be true, which is that like, this older person can get sick, not just from these kids, but from anybody in their life. Okay. So there's like so much of the world that's still uncontrolled in your model. The second thing is the kid might test negative on Monday, but this older person taking care of him on Saturday. And in the meantime, something happened, you know, and then the older person might feel falsely reassured by the Monday test and be all lovey-dovey. I mean, I don't know, maybe they're kissing and snuggling these kids more than they otherwise would had they had to live with the uncertainty. Um, so their behavior might be different, risk compensation. And I guess at the end of the day, like one could actually study this practice, like, you know, I mean, probably the, the, the older person daycare stuff, like that would be harder to study, but you could just study like a randomized control trial of districts in which there's routine testing versus not routine testing. You couldn't use cases as the primary endpoint because the testing will have just way more cases, but you could use yeah. secondary endpoints, like how many teachers end up in the hospital or how many teachers end up, um, you know, severely ill. And you could do a cluster randomized trial. Um, and I guess like the challenge I had was this person wasn't in medicine and, and it's very difficult to kind of explain to such a person that this thing that seems so plausible, like it ought to protect this older woman taking care of these kids, it could not work and it could even backfire. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I agree completely. And I, there've, there've been some estimates, like people tried to model the effect of like weekly testing. Cause you know, in nursing homes, this is one of the, the few things that we could do before the vaccine was around. Right. And um, you know, and, uh, there, it was very dependent on how long it took to get your test results back right? and uh, how often you were testing. And I think they estimated that if you're doing twice a week testing, you know, so like every three and a half days and you got your test results back within 48 hours, that maybe there's a 30% reduction. So in the, in, so that, that gives, in okay. transmission. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> which, and, which even, you know, which those, those realities are not often not the case. So, you know, twice a week testing with a two day turnaround. And I would say, and in addition to that, these are models based on assumptions. Like it would be nice to empirically test the thing itself. Yeah, yeah, it's probably not even accurate. Like this is kind of like best case scenario in my mind. And, uh, you know, sure, if you're in an emergency and you're trying to make something work, but, you know, it's certainly like considering the downsides and uh, doing the PCR testing, especially, I, I think is prone to the downsides of, you know, all these essentially clinical false positives from right. residual RNA. I like to run it at 45 cycles. <laughs> no. Um, yeah. I mean, I think this is the kind of stuff that I don't know, Dan. I mean, I think like your papers are super interesting and I feel bad in the sense that like, I think about that kid who's starting med school now and I, and then like all the useless things they have to learn before they get to this stuff. That's so important. And that to be honest, when do, when do we, when are we ever teaching these, these students this? I don't think we were ever teaching them this. I mean, I, I steal an hour or two out of the curriculum and, you know, and sort of talk to them this way, but I, I have a feeling that they're probably like, hey, remember that kooky professor? You know, like, remember he said that? Like, most of what we do doesn't work. You know, uh, anyway, uh, you know, let's, let's study the mechanisms of, uh, you know, CAMP or something. Um, I mean, and, and it is really disappointing, right? I mean, to, I mean, I think it's hard to balance the, the fact that you care about people and that you want the world to be a better place, but yet you don't believe that things work just because we think they work. Um, I think that's the hardest thing. Yeah. That's well put. That's the hardest thing in life is to explain that um, when, you know, I think 
that the goal is the same. Nobody wants this virus to kill people. And yeah. nobody wants life, and people want life to be maximally functional. Like we all want the same thing. But the, the, dis, the dispute is like, is what we're doing getting there? Or is it at some point hurting us on the life side and not helping us on this side? And I don't know, there's something to be, there's something to be said for having been a student of medicine because we know our limitations better than a lot of people. And I do think that people who are in engineering and computer science, they view the world differently. They're like, well, if I understand how it works, I ought to be able, you know, that's all you need. Cause that's yeah, how yeah. this stupid laptop works, I guess. But the body ain't that way. You, you know, we don't understand how the body works the way the laptop works. I don't understand how either work, <laughs> but, but, I, but I know that somebody knows how this damn laptop works, but ain't nobody know how the body works. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I definitely think there's, uh, I mean, I, I mean, I do think just the, the idea that you've, you know, obviously, you know, espoused without even sort of uh, standing back and sort of stating that it is a decision is, you know, how, how do we know what we know? And I think Adam Rodman did, did a good, uh, yeah, a good podcast on this, like, you know, talking about comparison yeah. theory from uh, others. And I think it's, I mean, it's pretty important. I think a lot of people don't actually say like, oh, we actually need like, you know, clinical and ideally experimental data to figure out what works. Yeah. Dan Morgan, uh, this is terrific. Two great papers. Um, great work. Very interesting stuff. I think people should read them. And uh, thanks for doing this podcast. Uh, great talking with you, Benet. Thanks. I'm back and there's some updates that have happened over the weekend. First of all, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who's both former Food and Drug Administration Commissioner and a sitting board member of Pfizer, came on Face the Nation and he has quite a quote. I've linked to it in my tweets. Basically, the commissioner says that parents should be empowered to make the right choice for them and their child. And that might mean one dose. That might mean if a child has already overcome SARS-CoV-2, one dose. That might mean weighing the risks and benefits of vaccine-induced myocarditis with the risk of the virus. And that parents should talk to pediatricians and make the choice that's right for them. Those aren't my words. Those are words of the former commissioner and current board member of Pfizer. That's the company that makes the vaccines. Okay, this is Scott Gottlieb talking. And I think it's very illustrative because if you combine Scott Gottlieb's point of view, which I think is very defensible and very fair, if you combine that point of view with a few other points of view, number one, the UK vaccine experts. The UK vaccine experts have now come out in favor of one dose, one dose for ages 12 through 17. They're not giving the second dose. That's consistent with Norway. Norway gives one dose 12 to 15. And Norway for 16, 17, it appears to me that they give the second dose eight to 12 weeks out rather than the US standard of three weeks. Now, one of the things that, one of the things that this, brings up is the thorny issue of how to reconcile these points of view with Los Angeles County. Los Angeles County has gone forward and mandating two vaccines for children ages 12 to 15, and they are not giving you that same luxury of uh, discussing with a pediatrician. If you don't do that, you don't get to go to school. And so there is a fundamental tension at play. How can you mandate a vaccine if it is not global consensus in the scientific community to go forward with that dose and schedule? I think the right answer here is to encourage vaccination, but take it a little easy on vaccine mandates, particularly that dose two mandate. This is a bad call by LA, by the Los Angeles school district. They've punished kids enough and they're gonna punish kids more with this. The next thing I wanna talk about is the Lancet paper. Philip Krauss and Marion Gruber are back with a paper in the Lancet about 
boosters. And they say pretty much everything I said in my commentaries on boosters over the last few months. One, this vaccine efficacy data we see, it is confounding by a time-dependent variable, which is that we didn't give it to everyone on the same time. We gave it to the frailest people and oldest people first and younger people later. And so if you look at vaccine efficacy very early on, you're looking at a cohort that's very old. So that's one of the challenges. The next point they make is that globally, it makes a lot more sense to give everyone one dose rather than have boosters. And the third point they make is that boosters may come with more side effects, such as an even higher rate of vaccine-induced myocarditis. And the solution is to do randomized control trials proving that boosters actually offer benefits. So that's my roundup of what's been going on. I think the commissioner's statements, the former commissioner, Dr. Gottlieb, are very illustrative. The UK's decision, I think, is prudent. LA, they're, they're pushing it too far. They are going beyond what I think the consensus view is. You need to have some space for scientific debates. Ah, the last thing I'll say. John Mandrola, Tracy Haug, um, Ali Krug, um, and uh, Josh, uh, they have a new preprint out on myocarditis, and the internet has gobbled them up. They've said they're terrible people, all sorts of nastiness. Um, but the crux of the debate is, you know, what is the rate of vaccine-induced myocarditis that they find? It's 1 in 6,800, which is not that dissimilar from reports from the UK, from, from Israel, from Ontario, from Norway. So I think it's much ado about nothing. And it just shows that people... They get really bent out of shape when they get a point estimate that they don't quite like, even if that point estimate is consistent with other point estimates. So those are my thoughts. The Biden administration is putting the squeeze on unvaccinated individuals to get their vaccine through a couple of mechanisms, but mostly through employer-based mechanisms. Either do it or you're going to lose your job. I think as we consider this, policy, whether or not it's wise or prudent, we should just walk through a few groups. There are six groups of people that we're thinking about right now in America. Let me walk you through them. Number one, they're the people who've already received at least one dose of vaccine. I just checked this morning and it's 63% of Americans, one dose. Okay, that's one group. This policy is probably not going to affect them because they've already gotten it. The second group. The second group are people who are unvaccinated, but who already have natural immunity. Now, it's hard to know exactly how big this group is because we don't have terrific seroprevalence data, but we do have one piece of evidence, which is there are a couple of surveys of seroprevalence run by the CDC that says about 20% seroprevalence. There's a survey of dialysis patients from Gemma Network Open that says 18%. So maybe it's about 20%. And this population is largely exclusive from the population that's already been vaccinated. The third group of people are people who are going to get vaccinated anyway. They were gonna get vaccinated, they just haven't yet gotten vaccinated. And if you think there's no such people, well, you'd be wrong because the slope of the vaccine curve has just always gone up, 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 up. There's gonna be somebody who is gonna get vaccinated anyway. So this policy won't affect them, they were gonna do it anyway. The fourth group of people, this is a critical group, it's people outside the reach of the policy. Now the policy won't do a great job of compelling retirees by the way, those are the people who have the highest risk of bad outcomes from the virus from getting vaccinated because it largely doesn't apply to them. It largely applies to people who are working. And there's also that group of Americans who can't get vaccinated, those under 12. And there's a group of Americans who are 12 to 18-ish in whom one versus two doses is a very live discussion. The fifth group. The fifth group of Americans are people who quit in response to this. They actually say enough is enough. I'm not gonna work at these companies. And the sixth group are the people who are gonna do it as a result of this. So as you think about policy, you gotta think how big could these groups possibly be? And is the benefit from getting the sixth group to do it, is that worth the penalty of getting the fifth group to be pushed out of society, really? 
And I think it's a tricky proposition because your endpoint isn't just the spread of this virus, it's all of the things that matter in the human condition, how well we do globally. And so the sixth group of people, I know we like to say that the unvaccinated are a risk to themselves and others, including vaccinated people, but the truth is they're mostly a risk to other unvaccinated people and themselves because they really shoulder the brunt of the risk. And I do think a fraction of those will increase their vaccination rate. What am I to guess? Three to 7%, something in that ballpark will increase. But I do think there's going to be a real fraction of people who get pushed out of society and that won't be great. It'll be bad for their upward mobility, bad for their children's future. It'll be bad in a number of ways. And I think if you had to weigh this policy decision, I don't think it's intuitively clear. I think it's quite challenging. The last thing I would say, the fact remains that a huge chunk of people have already been vaccinated or already have natural immunity. And so I think it might be difficult to separate the impact from this policy from what was going to happen eventually anyway, which is a reduction in the amplitude of the spikes of cases. I don't think they will go away forever, but I do think their amplitude will decrease. And I think it'll be difficult to tease apart what this policy does, but I hope some honest brokers go in and try to do it. So those are my thoughts about this policy. Now, I'm not approaching this from a legal point of view. I'm not approaching it from an ethical point of view. I'm just approaching it from a pure empirical policy point of view. There are six groups. You can start to estimate the size yourself and ask yourself if you think, how much juice are you gonna get from this squeeze? Tomorrow, September 17th, is a big day. The FDA Advisory Committee meeting is discussing boosters. This is the topic that everyone's been a buzz about ever since. The White House lit a fuse under the booster discussion. Now, you might remember a few months ago, it was Pfizer who announced that they're going to push forward with a booster. And they initially got some pushback from the CDC, from Fauci, from the White House, saying, whoa, we haven't seen any data that makes us consider boosters. Then, of course, there was a private meeting, and from that moment, the dominoes started to fall. The White House announced that they're going to have boosters by September 20th, and that the FDA, well, of course, it was pending the FDA's analysis to make sure it was safe and effective. And in response, two senior officials at the FDA, Marin Gruber and Philip Krauss, have resigned. And here we are on the verge of the big event. And the guidance documents are up on the website. You can take a look. What do I think? I look through the guidance documents, and what we're talking about is an unprecedented vaccination program, a third dose to tens of millions of Americans, older Americans, and the data that's being provided is that the antibody titers are a bit higher in a study. Now, antibody titers, of course, under some circumstances, have some predictive value, but under these circumstances, whether or not they actually mean these people are less likely to have severe disease is a big question mark. Now, of course, the company has offered some data, observational data from Israel. It's got a big problem. It's confounded. The people who got boosters are fundamentally different than the people who didn't get boosters, not just that they got the booster, but also the types of people they are, their behavior, etc. That's revealed in the data set. They have a dramatic difference in SARS-CoV-2 rates on day one after the booster, which is a little too fast for a booster to work. So that's confounding. But whether or not there's an effect is a big question mark. But the FDA has said that they have not reviewed that observational data. That data is not part of their consideration. It, they're really just considering this based on the antibody data. So we are on a precipice. There is the vote at the end of the day tomorrow, and they're going to ask whether or not these data support the word they're using in the draft guidance is approval. I suspect they mean authorization, but do they mean approval? I have some questions about that. But this is going to be a vote about whether or not these data are sufficient to allow boosters. Now, of course, the White House has put tremendous political pressure on making this happen. And of course, 
I've said over and over again, the data are not sufficient in my mind. What would be sufficient data? All I want to see is you take a thousand people over the age of 60, you randomize them to boost or no booster, and you show me they're better off, that they are less likely to get severely ill with SARS-CoV-2. I'm not necessarily sure that I'll be satisfied if you show me they're less likely to test positive for SARS-CoV-2, because I do believe at this point, it is a matter of time before everybody on earth eventually gets SARS-CoV-2 in our noses. The question is, are we going to get very sick from it? Or are we merely going to get it and clear it, which is the purpose of vaccination? And so if we don't do this, what might happen? Well, of course, things might go swimmingly. The booster might come out. It might go well. People might be slightly more protected. It'll be difficult to see that against what would have happened in the world without boosters because it'll be kind of a modest effect size. And things will just keep going forward. What might also happen, there might be a bunch of adverse events you don't expect, like myocarditis, like something else. And those events might have some time before they get caught in our passive surveillance systems. So that might be another consequence. But I think the real challenge will be, what will be the level of evidence required for the next dose? Why will the company stop with three? They'll go to four and go to five and go to yearly. And they'll say, you know, every time we give a dose, the antibody titer is higher. And so you should grant approval. Um, but that will lead to a system where we end up with lots of doses and a lot of uncertainty as to whether or not people are better off. I think now is the moment to draw a line in the scientific sand and say, we're not going to get this approval through unless you prove to me people live longer, live better, or that somehow the global pandemic is better off by having this booster policy. And I think the last thing is almost so difficult to prove. You can't even prove it. You're better off focusing on the individual benefit. You can't really prove that the transmission is going to be different because the counterfactual is quite hard to capture, measure, and document. So I think we're best off focusing on severe disease and hospitalization. And what I see to date in this packet, it's flimsy. And I feel a grave concern when political decisions lead to regulatory decisions. The fact that two FDA officials have resigned who have had long terms at the FDA, we're talking decades, this should give us all pause. So this is the moment that many of us were worried about would happen under the prior administration, that there would be a push to use low levels of evidence for a mass vaccine campaign. But it is in this moment, it is in this administration. And so we shall see what the vote ha comes out as. I have, uh, I've got concerns about this whole process. It is not satisfying to me. And the last thing I would say is, well, some people might say that this just makes it an option for people. You don't have to do it if you don't want to do it. It's just an option and you can weigh the risks and benefits with your doctor. And to that, I would say, Americans aren't good with options. We either don't have it as an option or we mandate it. We saw already in LA County that 12 to 15 year olds under the auspices of an EUA are getting mandated two doses or you can't come to school. We're gonna have widespread mandates, I think in healthcare settings, we're gonna have mandates in other settings, uh, perhaps even manufacturers, perhaps some of these tech companies are gonna mandate it. Who knows where the mandates will start and when they'll stop. And that to me is the difficulty in America. We are not comfortable in that space of it's an option. It's gonna move from the data is insufficient to it's a mandate, and I worry about that. That's not the, great, the greatest place for policy. So here we are, the day before the vote. I will come back and tell you my thoughts afterwards, but uh, I'm hoping, I'm hoping they do the right thing. I'm back with a new video. I want to talk about the booster vote that just happened a minute ago. 
This is my preliminary reaction to the FDA's vote on boosters. So as you know, we had a long hearing today and it was like nothing I've seen before. It was an energetic and spirited discussion and the initial vote failed, but they ultimately passed a vote. So what happened? They voted initially on the proposition that we ought to make available through a biological licensing agreement boosters for anyone over the age of 16. That failed. It failed with a skewed vote against it. But then they had further discussion and Peter Marks put up a new vote and that vote was the proposition that we ought to allow boosters in people over the age of 65 or people at high risk of SARS-CoV-2, including people at high risk through comorbidities as well as people at high risk through occupation. And they talked about healthcare workers, although some studies show that although healthcare workers are at higher risk, they're not at as high risk as other occupations such as being a cook or working in in construction or things like that that appear to be much higher risk. So what do I think? I think we're in a, in a tough situation here. Obviously, the level of evidence you would want for a booster, that third shot would be a randomized control trial in any of these populations, showing a reduction in severe disease and hospitalization and death in any of these groups. Alternatively, as many of the panelists talk about, we would want to slow the transmission of this virus. However, there is no data that's applicable to that question not retrospective data, not prospective data. There's no good data on that question. So it really is speculation. And in the absence of that good data and recognizing the fact that this is an endemic virus that will someday, I suspect, infect every single person on the planet, whether they've been vaccinated or not, I'm not necessarily convinced that that is a laudable goal in and of itself. The goal I think is to prevent hospitals from being overwhelmed and to prevent people from getting very sick. And I simply do not know if that's the case. I know the antibody titers are higher, but I don't know if that's the case from this vaccine. I also have some concerns around healthcare workers. That's a broad category. People who are at high risk of the virus is a broad category. What do we mean exactly by that? Is this going to be used for the basis of mandates? I think the other open question is this is the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. Does it apply to people who receive Moderna? I think it's not. Does it apply to a 20-year-old person who works in the IT department in a hospital? I think that would be a stretch. I think it would be very difficult for me to rationalize giving a 20-year-old, particularly a man, a third dose of this vaccine, even if they work in a hospital, knowing that we don't know enough about the myocarditis safety signal. So my overall thoughts on this, I guess the last thing I'll say is, Anil Mackam, a professor here at the University of California, San Francisco, um, colleague of mine, he had a nice little Venn diagram where he shows that the initial proposition that they voted on so overwhelmingly against, and the proposition they ended up approving have like a 70% overlap in the people. And that doesn't really reflect itself, I think, in the vote. I guess the last thing I would say is, those of us who watched this session, and you could watch it live streaming on YouTube as I did, we felt as if, and I've talked to some colleagues, it felt like they needed some upvote. It felt like they were gonna reformulate the question until they had something to show for this. And that to me makes it feel like it's been influenced by the political lens Obviously, the politicians led the way on this proposal, and that to me would be deeply problematic. So what are my overall thoughts? I guess I'm a little bit concerned about this booster vote. We will see what the FDA does. We will see what happens next week at the HIP meeting and how they craft this vote. I'm concerned that we're going to move forward into mandates. America is a, is a strange place. Either you can't do something or you're mandated to do it. It's very tough to get in the middle ground of you could do it if you want and have a shared decision-making conversation. That's a place we've never done so good at. And I don't know if we're going to do good at there as well here. 
And so I'm worried that we may be embarking on a massive experiment on the basis of little data. We don't know for sure how this will be interpreted. What is high risk of COVID? Who is high risk? That's a very vague category. Um, we might see some guidance next week, but overall, I'm pretty concerned. I also think this is not the way science is supposed to happen. You're supposed to define the population you want to give a booster in, run a randomized control trial, show those results to FDA, and then the politicians should trumpet it, not the other way around. And this feels rushed. It feels like um, we're under tremendous pressure. And I guess I have concerns about the whole process. So those are my thoughts on boosters just in the aftermath of this hearing. Um, and I will see how those thoughts evolve over the weekend and into next week. John Ioannidis is back, and he's got a new paper out now, European Journal of Clinical Investigation. It's on COVID vaccination in kids and university students, and it is a bombshell. He doesn't reach a conclusion in this paper. He's not going to tell you what to do, but he is going to play all the different angles and all the considerations that you ought to be thinking about as we move forward with vaccinating adolescents, university-age students, and then eventually as we move towards 5 to 11, which is pending ongoing clinical trials right now. So what does he talk about in this paper? Well, the first thing he talks about is that naturally this is a place where there's going to be a lot of debate and different countries have different policies. The United Kingdom is only giving one dose to kids between the ages of 12 and 17. Sweden at the time of his writing had not yet started to go below 16. The United States, of course, is in the other direction. We're giving two doses to anyone over the age of 12. And some school districts, like I've talked about here before, Los Angeles, they're actually mandating two doses or you can't go to school. So there's quite a lot of disagreement globally on terms of the best policy here. And naturally that occurs because different experts are looking at this evidence and weighing it differently. And John comes in and he's trying to give you a framework for how to think about it. And I actually thought the paper was quite useful. So I'm going to walk you through his, his takeaway and maybe add a little bit of editorial from myself. So first, John talks about indirect benefits. So what are indirect benefits? Well, of course, vaccinating university age students, vaccinating adolescents, vaccinating kids eventually that might have indirect benefits on the rate of spread in older groups of people, 60 and above, 40 to 50. But John concludes in his essay that, you know, there's just a lot of uncertainty there. Will vaccinating these age groups slow spread in other age groups? You can come up with reasons why that is the case. And he actually offers some reasons, which I know people will debate, but he offers some putative reasons why that might not be as much as you think it is. But regardless of those reasons, the reality is we just don't know for sure. And in the absence of knowing for sure, what we can talk about and what we should focus on are the direct benefits. So the bulk of his essay focuses on direct benefits. In other words, what's the balance of benefits and harms to the individuals themselves who are being vaccinated? And I think we all want this calculus to tip in favor that the policies we implement have a net benefit to the people who are undergoing those policies. So the first thing John does when he talks about direct benefits is he breaks it down in terms of death. So he says, what do we know about death? And he gets statistics from a number of different countries, the US, England, Italy, the Netherlands. And he asks how many kids per million kids under the age of 19 died, how many people between 20 to 29, and how many people older than that. And he gives you the raw numbers. And at the time of his writing, it was just under 400 kids under the age of 19 had died in the United States. Um, and it varies in these different nations. But what he does is he standardizes it per million people in the population. So in the United States, if you're under the age of 19, there are five deaths per million. That's the rate of death in the United States. And that's a little bit higher than our peer nations. Netherlands was 0.8 deaths per million. Italy was three deaths per million. 
When it comes to young adults, people 20 to 29, the deaths per million actually bounces around a lot more between these countries. The Netherlands is five per million. So what the same that we have for under 19. But young adults, 20 to 29, it's 51 per million in the United States. And that might speak to differences in socioeconomic factors and comorbidities and other patterns, which we're going to talk about in this video. The third group, adults over the age of 29. And here, you know, I gave you five in a million, 50 in a million. Here, we're talking about 3,000 in a million. It's just much, much higher. And John shows you that across all these countries. So his first point, I think, is that the death you might expect from a population level and having had this pandemic for 18 months, about five per million in the under 19 group. His next point here, when it comes to the benefits on death, is that we don't know, we don't have up-to-date zero prevalence data, so we don't know exactly how many of these kids are already likely to be much immune from this virus and how many will benefit from vaccination. Then he talks about the potential risk of the vaccine or some vaccine like J&J &J and AstraZeneca leading to VIT, which may rarely lead to death. Um, that has been known to happen. Uh, is it possible that some myocarditis leads to death? And he concludes that he doesn't know for sure. And he actually points out that if you wanted to detect something on the order of magnitude of one to two deaths per million people, you really need 7.7 .7 million kids or adolescents to be vaccinated, and you need complete follow-up on those 7.7 .7 million people. And we just don't have that in the passive surveillance system. So then John moves to non-fatal events, and he kind of runs through the calculus. He talks about that very seminal presentation that was at the A-CHIP, that was a CDC MMWR report by Gargano, which said that, you know, if you give a million pieces, people, adolescents, a second dose of mRNA vaccine, there'll be 11,000 COVID-19 cases. If you, if you didn't give it to them, they would be 11,000 COVID-19 cases, 560 hospitalizations, 138 ICU admissions, and six deaths. Um, but uh, if you were to give it to them, at most, you might see something like 40 to 50 myocarditis. And John's point here, I think, is that uh, he doesn't discount the fact that in the United States, using those rates, um, there's going to be a lot of harm to these kids if they were to be unprotected. I think his point is that we may not fully know all of the AEs because he argues passive surveillance is to some degree lacking and it requires adjudication and it doesn't always capture all the events you might be concerned about in non-fatal events. The point I wanted to make that uh, he doesn't make but that we've made in essays is that this calculation by CDC doesn't really take into account a one-dose strategy. It looks at two versus nothing. Of course, those aren't the only options. And across the pond, many of these nations are going to a one-dose strategy because that will mitigate most of the damage of SARS-CoV-2 based on vaccine efficacy studies that we have from people who had one dose. And it would also ameliorate most of the myocarditis, which appears to be predominantly after dose two. Then John has a section of his essay entitled Sociodemographic Features and Risk Stratification. It really talks about comorbidities, racial demographics, and socioeconomic status as potential culprits as to why the United States, even at these young ages, you know, we have 10, full, 10 times the rate of death in 20 to 29 as the Netherlands. And that might be explained by some of these deep-seated inequalities in our society. Finally, John talks about the uncertainty for future epidemic activity. And I think what he talks about in this section is that months after a vaccine, years after a vaccine, or months or years after natural immunity, what is the risk of reinfection? What is the possibility of reinfection? And he really acknowledges that there's a lot we don't know. He talks about a strategy of if somebody's had natural immunity, could they be topped off by one dose? Is that potentially better than natural immunity? And he calls for randomized controlled trials, saying that the existing literature is confounded, which I agree with. 
Finally, he re reiterates the seroprevalence point that seroprevalence and particularly seroprevalence by some of these other factors might help you to decide who you want to target first for vaccination because the groups with the least seroprevalence are much more likely to benefit uh, or the benefits are bigger than groups with higher seroprevalence where there's a lot of people who already have a good deal of natural immunity. And finally, he ends with the table. And the table is really a list of all the things you ought to be considering when you think about vaccinating kids and young adults. So I find this article to be rather interesting, clever. It doesn't answer the question. He's not going to conclude and tell you what you ought to do. But I think he lays out very nicely what are all the considerations you can imagine, what are all the things you know with some confidence, and what are the things you know with less confidence. And I think it gives you a framework to think about these things. And so that's why Jeff Flyer, the former dean of Harvard Medical School, I tweeted my tweet about this, and he said, you know, no matter how you feel about John, you'll want to read this paper and you want to consider these factors as we move to the next step, which is thinking about how we're going to handle 12 to 15 and school, thinking about 5 to 11, that's eventually going to be on the docket at FDA hearings and likely the AGIP. So those are my thoughts. The last stage of COVID-19 is almost upon us, and that is accepting that this is an endemic virus. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, those are the stages of grief, and we have yet to have the last stage when it comes to COVID-19. What does it mean to accept that this is an endemic virus? An endemic virus is a virus that is going to be intertwined with human beings from now until the end of time. COVID-19 is not going to go away. It's going to periodically have bursts of cases, and they may even threaten to overwhelm hospitals at some times and some places. There are a few reasons why COVID-19 was always going to be, but now we can finally discuss it and accept it, an endemic virus. And those things are, one, multiple animal reservoirs. This is a virus that has multiple known animal reservoirs. Even if you could somehow push it out of people for some period of time, it will come back to them from the animal reservoirs. The second thing is that there are breakthrough infections. People who've had the vaccine do have breakthroughs. Some of those breakthroughs are very mild, may even be asymptomatic PCR carriage, but that tells us the virus is not going away entirely. And then the third thing is that there's a few billion people who've not had any vaccination at all. And you put those three things together and you put together the number of people who've already have it and who may have it at this moment, and you come to the inevitable conclusion that this virus is here to stay. There is no hashtag zero COVID except for delusional parts of the internet. It doesn't really exist. And once you realize that, and you have to accept that this virus is there, there are a few things that follow from that. It is no longer a question of, will I be exposed to COVID-19? The question is, when will you be exposed to COVID-19? Now, I will concede you don't want to be exposed to it if you are unvaccinated. You want to have your best odds as an adult of being exposed to this virus. And for me, that means as an adult, you ought to be vaccinated. But once you've done that, once you've optimized your physical health and once you are vaccinated when you meet it, it's only a matter of time before you do meet it. And when you really think about that, that may change some policies. So for instance, college campuses. I've talked about in prior videos that college campuses are engaged in a bizarre theater. They're doing so much to prevent that virus from spreading on campus, including all of their students are vaccinated, sure. But then on top of it, they're getting weekly testing. I'm not sure what the point of that is. They're going to find some PCR carriage. And when they do find that PCR test positivity, they engage in vigorous restrictions. They're not allowed to gather together. They're not allowed to meet up in people's rooms. They have to get their food and eat it out of a styrofoam container and eat it with one or two other people at most or eat it outside. They have to wear masks. They even have to wear masks outside. 
Some of these things, like masking outside, which is Duke's policy, that might not even delay the time until the COVID comes around to you. It probably does nothing other than elaborate theater. Other things, like severe restrictions on gathering and parties and, and other activities, that may actually delay the time until the virus comes around. But is that meaningful? Is that useful? What is the value of engaging in so many strict precautions if you're, say, 19 years old, and instead of encountering the virus when you're, say, 20, you encounter it when you're 27? That, to me, is a question mark. How much do you want to forego life to delay that from 20 to 27, especially if you've already been vaccinated twice? Your odds are as good as they'll ever be when you encounter this virus. The next set of policies that trouble me are policies where highly vaccinated cities like San Francisco have a cloth mask mandate indoors. Now, let's be clear. This is a cloth mask mandate. That's the mask that didn't work in the Bangladesh study. So I'm not sure if it's doing anything at all. But even if one were to institute a surgical mask mandate, that might only delay the time until a vaccinated person encounters this virus. But a vaccinated person is likely to encounter this virus with some period of time. So how much of our life do we want disrupted if it's no longer a question of if, but when you will come into contact with the virus? Now, of course, there are vulnerable populations. There are older people. There are lots of people globally who have not yet had an opportunity to be vaccinated. Those people might want to engage in some precautions. They might want to shield themselves from opportunities to encounter the virus. Sure, but for most of us, most of us, once we've been vaccinated, there's not really much else we can do. We're not going to get any younger. If anything, we're just going to get older. We can perhaps try to improve our physical health, lose weight rid ourselves of a few comorbidities, but that's about all we can do. We are going to encounter this. So I think acceptance, accepting that this is an endemic virus is gonna be the last and hardest part of COVID-19. That means if you're a college or you're a graduate school and you are postponing in-person classes, what are you postponing them for if, you're, if your class is mostly 99 and some change percent vaccinated? If you are a conference organizer and you want to have a group of people together for a conference, what are you postponing it for? There might be some people in this country who are not yet vaccinated who are going to get vaccinated. That's inevitable. And there's a bunch of people who are not yet vaccinated who are going to acquire natural immunity. But there's nothing substantively different among vaccinated people that's going to change with a little bit of more time. And so I think accepting that this is an endemic virus is psychologically very difficult for people. I think many of us believed that this would vanish after vaccination or that we could achieve hashtag COVID zero. That was always a delusion offered by people who were in the business of selling a false promise. It was never going to be the case. And that was known very early on. And so my thoughts of this are that for most younger people, people who are healthy, who've been vaccinated, there's not much else you can do before you want to think about getting back to life. And once we really accept it, I think many of our policies would change and what is true in some places will be true everywhere. I want to talk about breaking news today. Pfizer has press release top line results of children 5 to 11, the randomized control trial. And what do we know? We know the geometric mean titer of antibodies developed in response to vaccination at the lower dose in 5 to 11 is non-inferior to the geometric mean titer of antibodies developed at a higher age group. And those are the top line results that has everyone abuzz. And indeed, I commend them. Of course, generating antibodies 
to the spike protein is a necessary prerequisite to having immunity against the virus. And in fact, this randomized control trial shows the primary endpoint of the study has been met that this vaccine at this lower dose, 21 days apart, Pfizer vaccine in this age group, is able to generate those antibodies. But I think much of the enthusiasm has gone a little bit ahead of the evidence. There are a lot of things we don't know and we want to know, and I think we will learn in the weeks to come as the FDA moves forward with their decision-making. And I hope they have an advisory committee to discuss these results. Because while it is true that this vaccination, this dose of 10 rather than 30, which is the dose for 12 and up, is capable of generating antibodies, I personally don't find that that surprising. I didn't doubt that this vaccine was capable of generating antibodies. In fact, I know it is capable of it. My question, of course, is what is the balance of risks and benefits to children in this age group, 5 to 11? Now, of course, they're at lower risk of bad SARS-CoV-2 outcomes, but not a zero risk of SARS-CoV-2 outcomes. They are also at risk of vaccine adverse effects, which, again, is probably likely to be very, very low. And I think regulators have to weigh the potential benefits of the vaccine against the potential downsides and think about it in terms of the context of an EUA or full approval and see what this vaccine data merits. Now, what are my questions? One of the things people who have been enthusiastic proponents of vaccination of this age group put forward is that over the last few months, we've had many children hospitalized with SARS-CoV-2 far more than we would like. And that is true. And that is deeply unfortunate. And I think the challenge here with that data, however, is that the places that had very high rates of children being hospitalized with SARS-CoV-2 are not places with high adult vaccination rates. They're places with lower adult vaccination rates. So part of the reason why the kids were susceptible to the virus is that adults around them had the virus. But the places that will embrace vaccinating kids 5 to 11 the most ardently are places like San Francisco, places with very high vaccine uptake in adults. And the problem with very high vaccine uptake in adults is that the chance that a kid will get sick of SARS-CoV-2 in these communities is much, much lower. So the FDA might make a vaccine available in this age group, but we might still see children being hospitalized because adults who they themselves are vaccine hesitant or reluctant may be more likely to be reluctant and hesitant for their children. And adults who've already embraced vaccination may be much more likely to embrace vaccination for their children, even though those children are already relatively protected because they live in places with high adult vaccination rates that didn't experience much of a Delta surge. So I think the actual practical on the ground implications of this need to be thought out a little bit more. I encourage many people to go back to my video a couple of videos ago where I talk about John Yonides thinking through the calculus for vaccinating adults and children. And he walks you through his thinking. I think that's very relevant here. The other things I will say, whether or not this trial has enough power to show me what I really want to see, which is not just that vaccination generates geometric mean titers of a certain amount, but that as a result of those titers, kids are less likely to get sick. I don't know the answer to that. In the adult randomized control trials, of course, the primary endpoint was symptomatic SARS-CoV-2. You had symptoms prompting a test for SARS-CoV-2 and you were less likely to have COVID-19. That's a nice endpoint. We also saw, because adults have much higher rates of severe disease, that the randomized control trials could show a reduction in severe disease. But with the kids' randomized control trial, I worry that there's probably not going to be enough power to see a reduction in death. I hope to see something in hospitalization. I hope to see some reduction in symptomatic SARS-CoV-2, but I don't know because those results have yet to be shown. And I have to weigh that against the potential for adverse events. They're the adverse events I'm keeping an eye on, such as myocarditis, which I know exists in boys 12 and up, but I don't know about adverse events I don't know, and kids aren't just little adults, so there are other adverse events I'm going to be vigilant for when I look at this data. So I want to say that this trial result is good news because if it were incapable of generating these antibody results, that wouldn't be good for the vaccine, so it is capable of generating them. 
but they're not that surprising. And they don't really come to the heart of the matter, which is what are the benefits and harms to kids of this age group from vaccination, and what are the practical ramifications of moving forward with an authorization or approval. There's an open question of whether or not the criteria for emergency use authorization are at place in this age group, given that, as I talked about in that video by John, that the risk of death in this age group is about five per million, in contrast with about 3,000 per million in an adult age group, also discussed in that prior video. But I think the more salient question, of course, is how the FDA is going to approach this question. Likely, there'll be some modeling exercises around it, how the HIP is going to approach it, how different states will seize upon this data. Will it be the places with the highest vaccination rate that jump in first, I suspect? Will there be school mandates? How do we deal with that? And then the other kind of issue is, well, why are we giving the doses 21 days apart when other data suggests that if you spread those doses a little bit further apart, you might be capable of generating even better antibody titers? Now, the geometric mean antibody titer is not something that in and of itself, I think, is super salient. But in the absence of that, I think it would have been problematic. So I'm glad that they've achieved that endpoint. And now the hard work begins, thinking through the benefits and harms in this age group. And I think we have to be very careful that we want to do so in an absolutely rational way, not influenced by distorted media coverage, by personal anxiety, but to do it as a scientist would, solely based on the known risks and potential risks and known benefits and potential benefits. And that's the way you think through these issues. So I hope to talk about it in videos to come as we learn more. But this is medicine by press release, my favorite kind. Well, it's only my favorite kind like the recovery trial when they put out the statistical analysis plan and the full protocol in advance. But this kind of press release is not my favorite kind. But I see that Twitter is a buzz with it. Thanks for listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Plenary Session is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it. Until next time. <laughs>